of American Prestige, the only podcast about U.S. foreign affairs and international politics available to you. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to us, um, particularly if people were able to tune into our Chapo Trap House episode and were able to get a sense of the podcast uh, through them graciously uh, putting it on their feed. Uh, welcome, and we hope you enjoy what we have to offer. Uh, I'm here with my, uh, as I am always, with my co-host, Derek Davison. Hello, Derek. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, in in sunny Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hit it big. Are you uh, are you sitting on a jackpot at this point? Oh, if only then I could finally quit <laughs> podcasting. Um, but <laughs> no, no, I'm staying in a beautiful Planet Hollywood uh, hotel, and it's everything that I uh, can imagine it to be. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting that you bring it up. I, I've been to Vegas, you know, a few times in my life. I haven't been here in a in a bunch of years, you know, six, seven, maybe even eight years, and it does seem sadder. Than usual, it does seem like mm. a bit of the wind has been taken out of Las Vegas's sales. Sort of a lot of the you know the pre and post immediate post real estate boom of hotel building feels kind of like chintzy now. Is is how That's I would describe it. So not related to like coming out of the pandemic, but this is deeper. It seems deeper. It okay. seems deeper. I mean, obviously, I think coming out of the pandemic would affected. And I, I mean, Vegas has been open for a while though. It just seems like uh, the city is a little taken a bit of a dive. And it's kind of interesting because Vegas to a real significant degree is to me, uh, to my mind, an example of, uh, of American imperialism, right? The, the buffets where you could eat food from all over the world. You know, you got the Paris hotel, the Bellagio sort of reimagining, <laughs> but yeah, so that brings us to uh, our guest today uh, with, with real honor. I, I'm happy to introduce uh, Aziz Rana, a friend of mine who is currently the Richard and Lois Cole Professor of Law at Cornell University, where I actually uh, spent a year a few years ago in wonderful Ithaca, New York. And Aziz, I hope everything is going well up there. But uh, how are you doing? Good. Uh, thanks so much for, for having me on the show. It's, uh, it's great to be here. And no, doing well. Just, uh, you know, enjoying summertime in Ithaca, which is always great. We've had a little bit more rain than usual, but um, it's, uh, it's been, you know, gorgeous as they say. So no complaints from my end. Yeah. Ithaca, New York is a, a quite a place and it was a beautiful place to spend a year and I got a lot of work done. But the reason that we have Aziz on today, uh, one, he's one of the foremost analysts of international law and U.S. domestic law and their intersections uh, and the history of U.S. foreign relations. Um, but in particular, I wanted to talk to him about this wonderful essay he published in M plus one a few years ago called Goodbye Cold War, which really took readers through this entire history of Cold War politics and how shifts in geopolitical understanding and shifts in perceptions of who exactly the U.S. enemy was really shaped American domestic politics. So Aziz, I think just as a starting point, why don't you give listeners a sense of what politics in the United States was like before the Cold War, or at least what were the most interesting and salient examples of things that changed 
um, when the United States decided to become the global superpower during and after World War II. Yeah. Uh, so I think if you grew up in the U.S. in recent years, there's a very familiar story about the country that you would have been told. And this is the idea that the country has been committed to freedom and equality from the founding and that the principles of the Declaration of Independence sort of inform all of American history. There are experiences of uh, racial subordination, slavery, segregation, but these are slowly being overcome because of the inherent goodness of the national project. That that inherent goodness then connects to commitment to liberal democracy and that American institutions are kind of near ideal um, embodiments of, of liberal democracy. And for this reason, because of this kind of exceptional past, the nature of American institutions, the U.S. has a kind of right to assert power on the global stage. Its interests are the world's interests. And when the U.S. exercises power, what it's really doing is promoting and pursuing commitments to, to freedom and equality everywhere. So this is an idea of the U.S., that was really forged in the mid 20th century and is a product of a set of, you know, what amount to kind of contingent historical events. So the New Deal, World War II, and then the early days of the Cold War when it really solidifies. And it's how politicians talk about the country. It's been sort of central to how Americans think of themselves. And what I try to argue in the piece is that in many ways, this way of imagining the country um, is not something that's just sort of inherently there from the founding. It is a product of 20th century developments. And that if you went back before World War II and the Cold War, the country and its political system would feel very, very different. So like in the early 20th century, if you're looking at really that period, let's say from the end of Reconstruction, so even going back to the late 19th century, all the way up through the 1930s, the country is marked by intense class conflict, there's, you know, rampant and extreme forms of white supremacy with, you know, uh, violence against African-Americans through lynching and other forms of extra legal. And the second Ku Klux Klan violence. of the yeah, 1920s. Absolutely. The rise of the second Ku Klux Klan, which is not just a product of the South, but, you know, is is present in places like Indiana and Oregon. That's deeply anti-Catholic, um, anti-Semitic as well. So that you have all of these kind of various vying forces and it means that on the left and the right, you have really sort of strongly established competing positions. You have like a genuine left politics of socialism that raises basic questions about the organization of capitalism, the extent to which a capitalist system is consistent with um, the interests of the working class. You have profound forms of internationalism, both among um, unions as well as among um, black politicians and, and activists. So this idea that Really, it's not that the U.S. is some exceptional nation, but actually maybe the U.S. is part of Europe's traditions and histories of colonialism and, and empire. And that, you know, um, oppressed peoples at home don't actually have interests in common with the U.S. state, but instead with other oppressed communities globally. And then on the right, you have this very powerful strain of white supremacist politics that in many ways is perhaps the longest standing strain in American political life going all the way back to the founding, where there's this combination of economic populism and white nationalism. And so this is the cauldron of American politics and ideas that feels very, very different than the staid story that we grew up with 
in the late 20th century, and then right. it's instead developed and reinforced in the mid 20th century. Right, and I think what's really important to underline here, at least when we're talking with the you know the nominally left side, the liberal side, is this notion of a harmony of interests is I think crucial to understanding the power of liberal imperialism as an ideology or liberal internationalism. That idea that really takes hold, um, particularly in our lifetimes, the last 30, 40 years, that the interests of the United States are the interests of the world is really crucial to understanding the powerful hold that liberal imperialism has, particularly on the meritocratic elite that actually makes U.S. foreign policy. And what Aziz is highlighting is that this wasn't actually the case before World War II, that on the left and on the right, um, for, for very different reasons, there wasn't uh, an understanding. I would say even uh, particularly from for the left side, when talking about the left side, a properly political understanding that there are things such as conflicting and contrasting interests, both within the United States and between the United States and other countries. So if that's the case, then what happens during World War II, what happens in the early Cold War to basically push this apocal shift from understanding politics as conflict to understanding politics as consensus? I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the insular cases first, because that's that's pre-World War II, and it sort of uh, is, is some context for, for this. Aziz, you wrote a piece uh, in November for the Yale Law Journal uh, about the insular cases, which is uh, uh, sort of the post-Spanish-American War, kind of the the reflected uh, the 1890s, kind of really early growth of an overseas U.S. empire, which, of course, predates uh, World War II predates the Cold War by quite a bit, but is lost, I think, in a lot of uh, the kind of narrative that you're talking about. It, it, it really, uh, these cases seem, you know, really to kind of illustrate in a very clear way, in a very specific way, um, the the ahistoricity of, of the narrative of the United States sort of, you know, spreading freedom and, and peace and democracy all over the world. Uh, and, and they reflect, I think, a lot of the, the domestic trends that were going on in, in Reconstruction and, and, you know, the sort of politics that we're, we were experiencing here in the United States. Could you talk a little bit, for people who aren't familiar with uh, the Insular Cases, talk a little bit about what they were and and how they sort of uh, provide some of the, the the basis for the empire and the, the real kind of underpinnings ideologically of, of U.S. empire? Sure. So the Insular Cases are a set of cases in the, in the first decade of the 20th century that have to do with what are the... The, the constitutional protections that will extend to people that live in newly acquired territories in the wake of the Spanish-American War. So especially in Puerto Rico, but also in places like, like the Philippines. And they lay out a kind of dynamic that's taking place during that, that historical moment. So, you know, in my own work, when I think about the U.S., one of the central arguments I make is that the best way we can understand American legal and political development really over the course of the first century of American independence and actually going all the way back to the 17th century is as what I call a settler empire. In other words, it was a society that combined really rich internal accounts of freedom, participation, economic independence for those that are viewed as settler insiders with fairly extreme forms of exclusion and expropriation for those on the outside. Outside, 
And this was especially organized through questions of land and labor. So American political development proceeded through a project of territorial expansion across the continent in which land was expropriated from indigenous peoples and then labor was extracted from communities that were viewed as outsiders, in particular enslaved African workers whose coerced labor was essential for the reproduction development of American wealth. What happens in the late 19th century and the early 20th century is essentially that that settler project reaches a kind of completion with the closing of the frontier. The country is facing all sorts of internal conflicts, class conflicts, industrial conflicts, questions about national identity that are related to issues of migration and race. And one of the central responses, and here the significant figures of folks like Teddy Roosevelt, was, well, maybe settlers can find social cohesion through a project of global expansionism and conquest. And just, I want to just say very quickly, what's so critical to me about that is that that sort of social expansion really helps, I think, serve as essentially an escape valve for class conflict in urban centers, is that they create this both literal space to expand into and this, uh, I think, very much important imaginary space of global American expansion. And I think that is one of the reasons that over the long term, class conflicts... is at some points able to be attenuated when you when you think it might be more intense, even though there was extremely intense class conflict, particularly before World War II. Yeah, so it's, it's doing two things. One is that the project of settlement actually coheres people into something like a, a coherent community, that the primary divide is whether or not you're a settler rather than if you're a formal citizen. African-American person can be a citizen in the North, but not actually fully included because they're not understood as a participant in this project of of settlement. And it gives real material benefits to those that are insiders. You know, if you're facing harsh economic conditions uh, on the coast, you know, you can pick up stakes and move. And that's actually something that is experienced by people. And at the same time, it provides a kind of ideological outlet where there's this idea that there's always this West or this possibility of, of personal national reinvention that ends up justifying the settler project. And one of the things that's happening in the late 19th, early 20th century is the plausibility, both as as a way of materially improving your life um, of of settlement disappears, and the ideological function is also breaking down. And there's a commitment among a, a group of elites during this period to reinvest in the project of conquest, but only writ large on the global stage. Um, And this leads to the annexation of Puerto Rico, the Philippines, the development of an outstretched American overseas empire. And it's an empire initially that's imagined to be equivalent to the same terms as the kind of European empire. So you actually have colonial possessions. Um, But the problem almost immediately is that, you know, the world is increasingly different even in the early years of the 20th century than it was earlier, that that there are just not as many colonies to claim, and you have the rise of anti-colonial nationalist resistance in places like, like Puerto Rico. And so you have a number of political elites in the U.S. that don't necessarily know what to do with this. And one of the ways in which they're struggling to make sense of, well, what should American power mean in the context of anti-colonial resistance, 
a world that's already been carved up by European powers and maybe a 20th century marked by what you know Du Bois called the the problem of the color line, the fact that there's going to be this new sort of rising incipient conflicts over over the very legitimacy of colonialism. And in the insular cases, so the insular cases had to do with, again, whether or not um, the same constitutional rules should apply to these new overseas territories as apply within the the states in the United right, States. Whether they're part of the formal political community yeah. of the United States. And what, yeah. what the court basically ends up deciding in a in a five-four opinion in Downs versus Bidwell, this is the first and sort of more most significant in the cases, is that um, that the Constitution need not apply to these overseas territories in the same way. So that if you Shocking. have certain uniform, like uniform custom duties within the uh, the 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 U.S. states, um, that you don't actually have to have the same kind of uniformity with respect to to Puerto Rico, and it becomes a foundation for saying that you can establish something like colonial dependencies within the context of the American constitutional system. Just very quickly, I just, I just have a question because one of the things that always struck me as particularly fascinating about this period is that people like Teddy Roosevelt and Elihu Root were some of the most important people in terms of advocating international law. So, I mean, I just want to say as a general principle, what do you think it means that they felt the need to codify essentially colonial oppression in law? Is that a peculiarly American thing or a liberal thing, or is that just, you know, something kind of historically contingent that isn't especially meaningful? You know, I think it actually becomes pretty significant for the U.S. because one of the things that Americans are also trying to figure out during this period is, well, what is it that distinguishes the U.S. from these other colonial powers? Because the the recognition is that, well, you know, the U.S. doesn't actually want to be in the business of holding these colonial dependencies. And in fact, the most significant of the opinions in the insular cases is a concurrence that says that some territories are going to be viewed as incorporated, and so the Constitution automatically applies. Other territories are unincorporated. They're not part of the family, quote-unquote, of American states, and so the Constitution doesn't fully apply. And part of the reason why certain territories should be viewed as unincorporated, here the thought is the Philippines or Puerto Rico, is that the U.S. shouldn't necessarily be in the business of permanently holding them as possessions, but at some point might return sovereignty. That's actually what eventually happens in the Philippines, uh, formal sovereignty, not what's happened with respect to Puerto Rico. But it highlights that even at this moment, there's both there, there are two characteristics that become really central to American power. The first is a defense of the discretionary authority of the U.S. state to assert power abroad and to limit the rights that are provided to individuals that are subject to American power. But then there's this second thought, which is, you know, maybe the U.S. isn't exactly the same as these other European powers. And one of the things that defines it is that it's in the business not of having broad, permanent colonies, but instead of taking over parts of the world that are read as, quote unquote, you know, chaotic or disordered, reconstructing that, those parts of the world in American terms, and then eventually, after some period, ensuring that those those places, once they're stable and settled, can enjoy their own sovereignty. And here is where I think law ends up playing a really significant role. Because law and this process of transforming, you know, what amounts to the global south from a site of disorder to one of order and stability is what's supposed to distinguish ultimately the U.S. 
from the other European powers. The principle of American authority, this is an argument that's already emerging during this era, is not supposed to be the principle of, ex of exploitation, of empire, but it's a principle of constitutionalism, of legality, of using law as a tool of reimagining and reconstructing societies in ways that can create a kind of, you know, a democratic community. Now, the, the, the thing to me that's, that's significant is that we can see what's happening in places like Puerto Rico and the Philippines as a kind of hinge where it shows us the links between the settler project of expansion and its kind of colonial foundations and what's going to become the 20th century story of, let's say, American primacy, where the U.S. doesn't actually claim formal territory, but it asserts a kind of continuous police power to, to, to um, reconstruct societies in its, its own image. And so what's happening at this moment is both an historical artifact that after um, the, the Spanish-American War, there's increasingly less appetite among American elites to continue to have other colonies. They see this as kind of a, a misstep. And also the beginning of a new kind of global expansionism that's sort of built around the discretionary and unchecked assertion of power abroad that's meant to transform the world into the, the country's own image. And one of the things that I was saying in this piece was I was both trying to highlight the way in which the insular cases speaks to this kind of hinge in the transformation and the meaning of American empire, but also the fact that it's not a case that's traditionally taught in constitutional law or in American law schools. And to me, that's significant because one of the effects, frankly, of the kind of familiar ideology that we have of the U.S. is that very little of American kind of domestic law transformations and domestic politics is told through the story of empire. I mean, if you were just to take a step right. back, you know, and you were to say, well, you know, how would we make sense of what happens to the U.S. in the 20th century? Probably, you know, one of the first things that should come to mind is like, well, the U.S. went from, you know, a regional power that was engaged in a project of territorial settlement that was a settler sibling to other English colonies like Australia and South Africa to a unparalleled global hegemon. Right. World bestriding colossus yeah. in, in a genuine way. The first truly global power, I think, in, in human history in a real sense. In the study of American law as a general matter, obviously I'm being, uh, you know, being kind of totalizing, essentially ignores that story. And it ignores the cases, the particular judicial cases, like the, these Insular cases, Downs versus Bidwell in 1901, for example, that are really significant as moments where legal elites and political elites are thinking about the transformation of the American state, the defense of a kind of discretionary, unchecked state and its ability to assert power overseas and what that means to the transformation of the U.S. And the reason so why all of this is ignored is because you know, it's not consistent with a story of American exceptionalism that emphasizes that the U.S. is not at all imperial, but is instead simply promoting the interests of others when it asserts power overseas. You know, reading that piece and, and kind of, uh, you know, thinking about the ways in which 
U.S. elites responded to the the acquisition of these overseas territories. I mean, it, it really is like uh, drawing a line up to the 21st century. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on in between, obviously, to to contribute to the growth of this empire. But the underpinnings of the Afghanistan project, for example, are here. I mean, this this sort of white man's burden that we're going to civilize these places, but uh, you know, we're not going to incorporate them. We're just going to treat them as kind of peripheral to the empire and and you know manage them. Uh, it's the same. It's the same thing. I mean, it's the same attitude that that uh, is is still there. I totally agree. I think what you're seeing worked out now. So it's obviously at a at an early stage where it's really unclear among elites what kind of imperial power the U.S. is going to assert. Will it try to actually become just another kind of colonial empire? The U.S. is still not a global behemoth. Um, so there are lots of differences between, you know, 1901 and, let's say, 2001. But there is something that I think is profoundly continuous with the logic that you get in um, Justice White's concurrence, this concurrence that emphasis, uh, emphasizes the idea of incorporated versus non-incorporated territories, which is the thought that, you know, the U.S. at some point might not want to actually have formal empires, but what it's interested in is essentially assimilating these other societies within an American system. And at some point, when those other societies are then understood as appropriately modern or adequately democratic, have imbibed values and in the institutions, property rights, market processes, um, the structures of government associated with the American state, then they can actually enjoy or exercise sovereignty. And that's basically the same logic that you see play out in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in a lot of the more recent interventions, where the idea is that the U.S. is essentially a stabilizing actor that is incorporating unruly parts of the world, quote-unquote rogue states, into an American system through interventions that are meant to transform those institutions and inculcate a set of values, and then at that point sort of leave the scene. Of course, the issue is the U.S. never truly leaves the scene, and then bigger issue is well, what about local self-determination and what actual communities on the ground want? I mean, it's it's expressed, I think, much more dumbly by Thomas Friedman and his, you know, argument <laughs> years ago that no country, no two countries with McDonald's ever went to war with one another. But it's the same idea, like the sort of, you know, this American si- system of consumption and capitalism is is inherently good and, and stable. I mean, you know, even that theory is, is bullshit, but... Uh, yeah, Georgia and know, Russia, right? Famously, yeah, exactly. In 2008, <laughs> the, the invasion. And Aziz, I think this is also important because it leads us directly to the question of race, which to me is a very clear link between earlier British and French imperialisms, in particular, and obviously German German imperialisms in Africa as well, um, and American imperialism. So maybe you could talk just a little bit before we go to World War II and the Cold War period about how these ideas of sort of hierarchy um, intersect directly with ideas of race and like. Why is it Woodrow Wilson, who's a liberal internationalist, uh, you know, from from the very racist Reconstruction era South? If you could talk about that for a bit, I think that'd be really interesting. Sure. And these will have, you know, these kinds of arguments will have corollaries in the, in the Cold War period. So during during the these first few decades of the 20th century, the folks that increasingly are making arguments for for this version of U.S. power, which is, OK, the U.S. isn't going to be 
directly colonizing um, other societies, but what it's going to do is intervene, reconstruct, and then, you know, ensure that there's the, you know, stable states or are part of a, a kind of shared American system. You know, these are arguments for American internationalism that are grounded in developmental theories of race. Um, and here, this is why Wilson is actually really significant. So, you know, and what's the what's the first name of foreign affairs? It's the Journal of Race Relations. Is that correct? Oh, is that right? I, yeah, the original name for foreign affairs is something along the lines of Journal of Race Relations. So it's totally embedded in the community. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, I, I mean that's uh, t- perfectly consistent with this thought, which is so Wilson's basic vision of the world, which is something that was co- you know commonly espoused in the the early part of the twentieth century among American elites, is that the world is divided up into distinct peoples. And these peoples are on a path toward um, um, ethno-racial maturity. So different peoples, different ethno-racial communities have different levels of maturity. And immaturity ends up producing violence, chaos, disorder. Maturity is associated with the values that are identified as, as American. So with the American constitutional system, with a particular approach to market capitalism, property relations, construction of the state. And that, you know, what the U.S.'s responsibility is, is to guide less mature societies, which are overwhelmingly colonized societies, so black and brown communities, on a path toward maturity. It's a project of tutelage that doesn't understand the American role as a kind of permanent role of permanent colonization, but of sort of like instructive handholding that might require pretty aggressive forms of intervention. For example, and let me just correct myself. The, the, mm-hmm. the title was the Journal of Race Development. Uh, so it's well, exactly so in this. Yeah, yeah. So this is and but it then it then became the Journal of International Relations before and it then became Foreign, Foreign Affairs. Affairs. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and this is very closely tied to Wilson's own white supremacy. So Wilson is um, a child of Virginia slave owners, um, you know, enslavers. He is uh, somebody that, you know, very consciously sees Reconstruction as, um, as a terrible historical tragedy because in his racially developmental theory of the world, that what Reconstruction does is it subverts the power of the mature and appropriate communities that should be in power in the South. So these are white elites. And instead, he, you know, provides power to... Um, previously enslaved African workers who he reads as less, quote-unquote, racially mature. And, you know, Jim Crow for him is therefore justified because it it establishes the appropriate kind of racial hierarchy and order within the American South. Similarly, he imagines the U.S. is very closely tied to South Africa, to Australia, and that American power— is both supposed to create a world of independent nation states, so all peoples are supposed to have sovereignty, but on terms that proceed through this vision of racial hierarchy. And these are ideas that really shape American foreign policy making, the kind of international sensibility in the, in the first four decades. And then they face a fundamental confrontation, let's say this is. And this is the fact that World War II is a war fought against Nazi Germany, a fascistic and racist regime. Um, And so American justifications for the war increasingly emphasize anti-racist principles. 
But then the victory over Nazi Germany produces a dramatic break in the international system. In other words, the international system had been organized through European empires. This was why the U.S., for example, wanted to you know, get its foot in the door by colonizing places like Puerto Rico and the Philippines. So the, the world system is organized through these, these you know, great European empires. And what World War II does is that even the victorious European powers like Britain, like France, are utterly and completely devastated. The Europe, like the European empires are destroyed essentially by World War II. And we have an historical moment where, you know, basically what's, what's about to happen is the mass decolonization of the global south. And so that you have anti-colonial nationalist forces across Asia and Africa that are pressing for independence in a context in which the old system has collapsed and that the U.S., um, now finds itself also facing a legitimate ideological and material rival in the form of the Soviet Union. And all of this raises basic questions about, well, how is it that Americans are going to justify their own authority on the international stage when the old form of empire is broken and then there's a new um, rival in the form of the Soviet Union? And there's also, I think, just want to um, underline for our listeners, is this is also the big shift to the rise of, of the nation-state as the organizing principle of international politics, where you get this this sort of 100, 150, 200-year period where the nation-state and, and empires are the same thing, that they're, they're kind of going along parallel tracks and they're intersecting at various moments. But now it's really during and after World War II when you get the nation-state is going to be the organizing principle, the organizing sovereignty in international politics. So it's a really crucial moment from a very macro perspective as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so what um, what American elites are are kind of working through, and, and I, I want to be clear that the way that I'm, I'm presenting this, it might sound a little conspiratorial. It's not. Like, these are arguments that were percolating domestically, that had clear constituencies, that were deeply held and deeply believed in. But they have a they they fit very, you know they they fit very comfortably with the tra- with the transformations in the the global international system, and it's part of what makes them so powerful both at home and overseas. So what American elites increasingly say is that well wait a second, the U.S. is the perfect superpower for this new era, and the reason why it's the the perfect superpower is because the U.S. From its founding has never been imperial. In fact, its independence was a break from the British Empire. And it's exceptional in all the ways that that we're more familiar with. It's grounded in principles of liberal equality. What it promotes abroad, uh, values of constitutionalism, of market prosperity, self-government. And so it, it, it what ends up happening during this era is the emergence of a new way, basically, of solidifying the meaning of American power that draws from some of these long gestating ideas that are there even in folks like Wilson or or Roosevelt, but explicitly marries them to what becomes the the liberal international order of the post-45 period. So a commitment to legal constraint so that the U.S. is trying bilaterally with other countries to promote constitutionalism. It's establishing these multilateral institutions, both for global wealth, but also for collective security. 
Um, like the World Bank, the IMF, you know, exactly. these famous institutions that you've that you've yeah. heard of. Um, and then also increasingly a focus on racial equality as both something that is central to national identity at home. The U.S. has always been free and equal. Slavery is something that is aberrational. It's not essential to American identity. The country is, on a, is incompletely liberal, but it's on a, a path toward liberal fulfillment. Um, and part of the reason why that's significant is because the U.S. is fighting for hearts and minds with the Soviet Union in a global world that's, you know, 80% non-white. And so to simply reproduce the kinds of defenses of American power that somebody like Wilson was articulating in his version of internationalism just isn't going to work. And it's also not going to work when the Soviet Union, you know, is explicitly embracing various kinds of anti-racist principles, is backing anti-colonial movements, and has it has its own history and story that, ha- that connects in various ways to communities in the global south. You know, it's not a behemoth that, you know, it's, it's um, a late industrializer. It's dealt with extreme um, poverty. It has an economic, quote unquote, success story, especially in the mid-20th century, that seems to mirror the kind of developmental goals and paths that many communities in the global south might want. Right. It prevents a model available yeah. to people, like a, like a model that they could really seize upon in a real way. So the U.S. has to has to successfully respond to it. And it means that it promotes these ideas of multilateralism and legal constraint. It emphasizes, increasingly emphasizes notions of racial equality and anti-imperialism as central to national identity. And then the third thing is um, it, it, this all emphasizes the need for um, social welfare is not just at home, but abroad. You know, things like the, the Marshall Plan, things like the U.S. investment in the World Bank. So a commitment to large-scale developmental projects to show that support for the American system actually produces material be- benefits for people in the global south. And all of this become really central to the mid-20th century order that the U.S. develops. Aziz, is this all bullshit? Like, I, I know it's difficult because one of the <laughs> things that I think it's important and when you're critiquing things from the left is that to to draw the line between when people are using, you know, let's say the Marshall Plan as a tool of power politics and when people genuinely believe that this is something that the United States should do. So, like, I guess the question, is it bullshit or do they believe their own bullshit is, is what I'm trying to essentially ask. Are you able to sort of tease that yeah. out of what you've been analyzing? Yeah, so, you know, I guess the way I, I, I try to think about it is, you know, I think, I think somebody like Obama or the Clintons or, frankly, you know, the Bushes, they deeply believe this. Like, I think that this is stuff that is deeply internalized. But just because, you know, it's deeply felt and deeply believed, that doesn't mean that, it, that the outcomes aren't incredibly destructive on the ground. And to me, like a central part of what ends up generating the really destructive outcomes is that these are a set of justifying arguments and institutions for American supremacy. And a key part of the argument was that, well, for all of this to actually work, there still has to be a backstop. Mm -hmm. There has to be some actor that isn't just constrained by the rules, but that when necessary can step outside the rules in order to ensure that the system as a whole works. Carl Schmitt. Yeah. So this basically is, there, the, there's a kind of exceptionalism 
that is built in to the order. And what that means is that the U.S. is always, from the very beginning, both operating through institutions that it establishes that are built on multilateralism and constraint, but stepping outside those institutions to impose violence on those that are viewed as recalcitrant. And communities that are viewed as recalcitrant are essentially any of the communities that are not interested in what the country is selling. And in particular, are trying to embrace alternative economic models of development, including principles of socialist democracy that are engaged in um, anti-colonial and then later um, uh, resistance politics against American clients or um, American allies that are themselves imperial powers. And this means that this period, which I think can rightly be thought of as that, like the high tide, the heyday of the kind of American liberal order with an investment in social programs, a commitment to building these multilateral institutions, is also at one and the same time the period in which we see, you know, mass violence that the U.S. is participating in, from the assassination of, of foreign leaders to the support for violent coups, and then in the case of Indonesia, you know, a genocide that ends up um, being precipitated in the wake of of one of these authoritarian takeovers to, you know, the, the war in Vietnam that kills millions of civilians and illegal bombing campaigns in places like Laos and Cambodia. So, you know, I think it's sometimes easy for folks on the left to say, well, this is all just like, you know, none of it is true. It's, you know, it's just a, a series of lies that that people are saying in order to, to, to promote their own interests. I think the thing that that makes the scarier. <laughs> yeah. So so durable is that, you know, they have they have an element of truth to them and they can be deeply held. Like somebody like McCain can feel really deeply that, you know, I fought and almost died for a world order that genuinely provides freedom and equality to everyone. And at the same time, supporting that world order requires extreme forms of violence like in Iraq or elsewhere. Like both of those things are married in the same ideological position. Aziz, you talk about the the some of the really internationalist roots of organized labor in the United States in the sort of pre-World War II, pre-Cold War period, and the extent to which the organization of American politics around the idea of anti-communism really kind of cut the heart out of a lot of these things. I mean, there was, uh, you know, a conscious... Uh, sort of desire on the part of labor in the United States not to be viewed uh, as communist and to sort of divorce itself from uh, the, you know, the the IWW, for example, or some groups that were looking abroad at a sort of transnational uh, labor movement. Um, you know, looking looking at you know how much the the Cold War kind of organized these principles, and then. Looking at where we are now in a situation where uh, there is no great communist boogeyman anymore, although we're certainly trying to create uh, that that feeling around China to kind of get the uh, get the old high back, I guess. Um, But but, you know, not only are we do we not have that kind of boogeyman sitting out there, but we face a, a set of problems, you know, climate change being uh, foremost among them that can't possibly 
be solved in the way that le- the left in, in the United States would like them to be solved without looking uh, overseas and without uh, approaching it uh, with a view toward foreign policy. Um, how, how do we get back to a point where, uh, you know, the, the cleavage between kind of the domestic left and the foreign policy left uh, can be repaired? Can, can we stitch these things back together? Yeah, I think the first thing is just thinking a little bit about the, you know, the state of the world now and the state of the world, let's say, in in 45, 46, that, you know, there was a position that that was on the left that you saw still within the labor movement, also within radical black politics, that um, that was explicitly internationalist, that was sort of suspicious of the U.S. essentially taking the stage as a replacement to the, the European empires, and that understood the world's problems in the way that, you know, I think we should understand them right now, which is the world then, different ways the world now, um, experiences mass inequality, various kinds of, um, of you know, uh, economic, material, military, and I'd add today, like, you know, ecological disaster. And that the only way that these problems can be addressed is through a politics of genuine solidarity that treats the world's resources and wealth as a shared and collective commons. And one that has to be redistributed in keeping with, you know, shared need. And this was why, you know, you had folks in in the mid-40s that were on the left that were not Soviet sympathizers. You can think of C.L.R. James here as somebody that's a socialist, but intensely anti-Stalinist. So this is the great Caribbean critic and, and writer um, who nonetheless are absolutely opposed to the, to the Cold War. And the Cold War being a framing of the world as marked by kind of Manichaean opposition between friends of the U.S. and enemies, anybody that's viewed as within the Soviet orbit. And then increasingly that gets extended to um, to various kinds of anti-colonial and nationalist organizations in the global south that are pushing back against American allies. And that- Which to me, I just want to very quick, uh, really does emerge from this American millenarianism that is unique in, in terms of the North Atlantic world, the sort of Puritan Protestant origins of the United States and their universalizing vision, which I'm sure we'll talk about on a later episode. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I just no, think that's so, so critical. So, so this, is, I mean, this is a Manichaean us versus them worldview that, you know, defi- that increasingly defined American politics in this, this 45 period which carves up the world into friends and enemies, sees the world as a space where resources should be hoarded among friends, and then enemies need to be immiserated because the immiseration of enemies highlights that there is no other model for development democracy besides the one that the U.S. is, is promoting. And that was always, you know, you'd say the the underside, like the, the, the other side of the coin with respect to you know, projects like the Marshall Plan. Like, what's the Marshall Plan doing? You're providing development assistance in that moment, but only really for allies as a way of undermining, um, you know, the, the willingness of, uh, of local, local states in, in, in Europe to essentially pursue socialist or alternative paths. Now, 
What happens to the commitment, let's say, for a truly global New Deal that applies everywhere in the world, that's built on principles of solidarity, which is present, what happens is that you have a really intense and harsh state crackdown against any forms of dissent through tarring various groups as as communist. And in combination with that crackdown, you also have real internal shifts within the labor movement. The big difference between the IWW's heyday in the late teens and the post-World War II period is that labor feels like it really wins during the New Deal. Labor is the backbone of New Deal politics. You know, working class voters are what provide FDR with the massive supermajorities in order to be able to implement various kinds of social programs. And um, labor very much feels like it's now at the political table. And this means that you have a number of labor leaders who believe that they have an investment in what the state's doing and that there are real benefits, material benefits that come from backing the state's project. And also, you know, some of those labor leaders genuinely kind of commit to the kind of anti-communist arguments that are emerging out of uh, the Truman administration, the Eisenhower administration, and others. And, so- and Aziz, would it be fair to say that the American labor movement is more, quote-unquote, conservative than it, many of its contemporaries in the North Atlantic? That's always struck me as true and probably related to settler colonialism. I'm not sure that I would go that that far, but I will say that in the period that we're talking about, like the 40s, I think it's really important. This is one of the things that the left, you know, folks like us have to kind of reflect on, which is the experience of social democracy for union members and union leaders in the 40s and 50s is very closely tied to American empire. I mean, it's World War II and the kind of the largesse that the U.S. enjoys on the global stage in the wake of the war is associated with, you know, the birth of the American century. And it means that, you know, um, if for your kind of regular, especially like white um, union worker and then white white male leaders in the unions in, in the 50s, they see this period, you know, whatever our own perspectives of the profound oppressive nature of 1950s America as a period of real kind of middle class success for for the labor movement and right. capitalism delivered on its promise and i mean in a sense to a certain segment of people i, ex- I mean yeah, I think it's a, read obviously that, it's, a and relative, it's reasonable to read it yeah yeah and so it means that that there's a portion of the labor establishment that internalizes the kind of the anti-communist politics of the time backs the american state goes from being you know, let's say in the the teens um, more explicitly internationalist and suspicious of the national security prerogatives to supportive of those national security prerogatives. Um, and, you know, all of this has really profound impacts on where American politics goes. In particular, it means that the labor movement, it, you know, as a general matter, the traditional labor movement makes a certain set of choices during this era to cleave off domestic claims about bread and butter issues from critiques of American foreign policy, such that by the time you get to the 60s, you know, the traditional labor movement is very hesitant to criticize things like Vietnam because the thought- right, Famously. Well, yeah, that, that what, what labor movement is involved with are these, they're part of 
a set of elite decision makers, business, government, and labor that sort of shapes the terms of a domestic bargain. There's this other thing that's really significant. And, you know, maybe I'll pause here and then we can get into some of the the later stuff, with this being the last point, is um, that we also have to be very honest about just the evils of the, the Stalin regime, like the way in which um, the, the sort of like Stalinist politics ends up really deforming the politics of, of socialism during this period. And by this, I mean that if you're a socialist in the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century, it's really socialists that are making the strongest calls for democratizing American politics. Right. Both black socialists and labor socialists. They're the ones that are saying, hey, this constitutional system is fundamentally undemocratic. We have to figure out ways to ensure that everybody has access to the vote. You know, that they're the ones that are trying to think really of the labor movement and also of the black freedom struggle as an insurgency on behalf of democracy. And it's really defenders of the state that are promoting various brands of either capitalist or like white authoritarianism. And one of the things that happens, I think, in this mid-20th century period is that the Soviet kind of specter and the kind of authoritarian politics that's associated with the Soviet Union and the way in which the Soviet Union becomes a stand-in for socialism generally makes it very easy for Cold War liberals and for elites in the state to associate the entire tradition of socialism with authoritarianism and to re- and to engage in a kind of systematic form of left repression that over time basically rereads the history of the first half of the 20th century where American institutions, a, kind of a brand of liberal democracy that as we've seen recently really is profoundly dysfunctional, deeply anti-democratic, is understood to be the only meaningful model. And all of those earlier socialist, pre-Cold War socialist experiments are read as just, you know, stepping stones on the path to Stalinism. And so they're both, in a way, what you can say is the, the ideological cementing of the U.S. as equal to democracy, Soviet Union as, and like authoritarian state socialism as equal to all versions of socialism that takes place during this period comes through carrots and sticks. Material benefits for the working class, white working class in particular, the stick of significant repression, and then a general transformation in cultural memory in which, you know, the idea of thinking of socialism as a pathway to democracy is basically eliminated. You, I, I think this the the cleavage that you talk about the the decision to sort of divest foreign affairs from domestic politics has such huge repercussions. I mean, something, you know, Danny's talked about before is uh, the the sort of conscious effort uh, as World War II was wrapping up and, and we were moving moving into the Cold War to take foreign affairs out of the domain of any public input, not, not just, you know, at a direct level, but even to take it away from Congress and kind of uh, instantiate it in think tanks and, and in the executive branch. It becomes much easier to do that uh, when you have the Democratic Party basically, you know, saying we don't want to deal with foreign policy. I mean, it's, it's not quite that simple, but, uh, you know, we're not going to treat foreign policy as 
political. We're going to treat domestic politics, domestic issues as political. We're going to leave foreign policy off to the, you know, quote unquote, bipartisan consensus. Uh, it, it makes it a lot easier to get into this sort of self-fulfilling cycle of voters don't care about foreign policy, which is something you hear over and over again. You hear, you know, right. seasoned, savvy political guys say this. Yeah, all and the it, guys it really who know is, everything. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it really is, uh, you know, sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't talk about foreign policy in these terms, if you don't make it political, then of course nobody's going to care about it and they're not going to vote on it. Um, it's how we get to 2008 when, when Barack Obama is elected as an anti-war president, which is just the most fundamentally absurd, one of the most fundamentally absurd things uh, that, that you can conceive of. Um, it's how I think we get Samantha Powerism or the sort of, you know, liberal uh, interventionism and and for humanitarian reasons, uh, which is just a continuation of the, the things that we're talking about in terms of civilizing and, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, white savior complex. Uh, but, but it's, it's established as the sort of like left end of foreign policy because we don't, we don't have a much of a space for foreign policy. It's very narrow. It's a very narrow thing. Um, I, I, I guess, you know, that's <laughs> again, a lot of stuff to unpack. Yeah. Uh, just but, connecting it to, to the, the second half of your past question that despite talking forever, I didn't get to. Um, (laughs) It's a particular skill. We've all got it. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that this is really significant. And another turning point historically is so, you know, the 60s see the steady breakdown of that kind of high tide of the of the kind of Cold War era, the, the 40s and 50s that we were just describing, you know, in the context of um, intense civil rights protests, urban like you know urban social rebellions at home, the war in Vietnam abroad, and all of that produces I think a, a really significant election in '72 where one of the things that you can say is that McGovern was not just campaigning against the war in Vietnam, that in a way that campaign stood in for a general critique of the Manichaean us-versus-them thinking that it shaped 25 years of Cold War politics. And what happens is that McGovern is just, you know, defeated in a a massive landslide. And the lesson that that teaches multiple generations of politicians on the center-left is that, that there is no viable pathway to national power by sort of disagreeing with Cold War orthodoxy and confronting the terms of the American national security state. I mean, I think that's that's the lesson. And then it produces this approach that says, well, we don't talk about foreign affairs. What we talk about is sort of like economics. It's the economy, stupid. You know, this is the, the James Carville thing in 92. And then Clinton's election ends up in many ways sort of reinforcing this idea. And I think the thing that to me that's really interesting about our moment, and we can extend this back to 2008, frankly, when you're right, like the reason why Obama beats Clinton and uh, Hillary Clinton in the primary is because he's the anti-war candidate. And you can see this in, you know, all the way through the last decade plus is that I think many folks within the Democratic Party establishment sort of still, in a sense, think that we're shaped in various ways by 72 and the politics of conservative reaction that marked the last quarter century 
of the. And that's a problem with gerontocracy, I would add. It's a problem when all your leaders were literally politicized in 1972. It's, uh, you know, it's not shocking that people who had a particular historical experience and who now govern the party are acting like it's 50, literally 50 years ago. So I think these sort of domestic problems and international problems often intersect. And it means that they're, you know, the, the kinds of reference points and assumptions about politics today, you know, really just don't, don't fit, you know? So we're in a moment where I think for um, an increasingly significant and vocal base, socialism is not associated with the Soviet Union. Socialism is much more clearly associated with the, you know, the kind of democratic experiments that marked the the pre-Cold War period. Or Finland or Northern Europe, you know, like, like sort of countries like that. There's a, a new signifier basically being attached to the term. And it also means that, you know, one of the things that I would say is that, you know, this is also a product of a decade plus of really rolling crises within the kind of ideological terms of, uh, of American politics. So you have the financial crisis that really raises profound questions about the extent to which American economic global dominance actually provides largesse for everyone, let alone for Americans at home. So the idea that empire and domestic economic largesse go hand in hand, which would have made a lot of sense to people back in the 50s, uh, to white workers in the 50s, like that doesn't make any sense now. You have multiple, you know, failed overseas wars. You have all of the issues around um, uh, racial oppression, mass incarceration, rolling um, urban rebellions. And then, of course, on top of that, both, you know, ecological disaster and like a health pandemic. So none of this, you know, underscores the idea that that way of thinking about the world in which you can't talk about foreign affairs because you're going to face this kind of like Cold War blowback still holds. And it creates a lot more space, frankly, in the present to stitch together the foreign and the domestic. And I actually think that's one of the things that's been really most interesting about left politics over the last year and that we can certainly see in the response in the U.S. among folks on the left to, for example, you know, is Israel's attempted um, expropriation of uh, Palestinian homes in Jerusalem and then the bombing campaign in, in Gaza. Um, but maybe we can get to that in a bit. So one question that I have then, and I think your essay is really good because one of its major arguments was that 2016, and particularly the rise of Trump uh, and Bernie, suggested that this Cold War ideological framework is no longer nearly as compelling as it was. But then, of course, Biden won. So I was wondering if you could maybe comment a bit on how your perception changed between the publication of that essay and I believe 2018 and what happened afterward, even though I want to underline that in the original essay, Aziz does say that, you know, uh, establishment politicians will probably remain powerful for at least, you know, I think it's around the next 10 years. But so what do you, how do you place Biden's election in particular in the framework you developed in uh, Goodbye Cold War? Yeah. So the argument that I make in, in Goodbye Cold War is that we tend to think of a Cold War as a discrete <clears throat> conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union that ended in 1989. But actually, in many ways, the def- you know the collapse of the Soviet Union and the perceived victory in the Cold War actually supercharged many of the underlying exactly. ideas associated with post-war American power. 
Right. 1989 is not a hinge point. It's an acceleration. In yeah. a sense. I mean, it, it is a hinge a, point, but accelerates. It, it creates a kind of fundamentalism behind the defense exactly. market. So it's like you have a defensive market capitalism, but now in an era of austerity that dates back to the 70s, like shorn of the, the kind of social welfareist ambitions that marked U.S. policies in the 40s and in 50s. So you have, you know, privatization moves um, in in East Eastern Europe and Russia and elsewhere and um, all of these kinds of harsh, harsh austerity programs. And then you also have a kind of fundamentalism around the American constitutional system with this sort of the growth in a domestic culture and the, the hagiography of the founders that actually like Hamilton and, and Madison created um, were geniuses that bestrode the earth and created a near ideal institutional framework. And you also have a commitment to interventionism that's read in moral terms. This is the kind of Samantha Powers politics of, of humanitarianism and human rights interventionism that is shorn of any of the geopolitical constraints and dynamics that had marked the Cold War period. So this is something, um, Daniel, you and I have discussed, but it's, you know, it, during the Cold War, there was, there obviously there like, the U.S. was engaged in all sorts of um, awful interventions, but it was always shaped by the reality that there's this there's this other kind of like potential political enemy. There's a political meaning and context to, for example, what the U.S. is doing in Latin America in the 80s. There's a way in which if you're on the liberal left, you're suspicious of some of these because of how the political valence of various countries might fit. With the Soviet Union gone, it's almost as if American interventionism loses its political character. That it's not, right. you know, it's not like you're overthrowing a government that stands for, you know, a certain set of political principles, like, you know, the Bay of Pigs in Cuba or attempting to. But rather, it's just the U.S. has a commitment to making the world safe. The world is, a, is you know, a collection of victims, oftentimes being marginalized by rogue states. And so the U.S. has this responsibility to assert kind of international power. And so and just one one thing that's so interesting to me as someone who grew up who was a young child in the 1990s is you, is you get this real resurgence in Holocaust memory, which I think is directly connected to this idea that the United States needs to go around the world preventing genocide. So all of these things are reflected not only in the macro structure and the geo strategy, but also in the literal cultural products that people are consuming in their everyday lives. I just think that's a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, that's really interesting about the, the 90s that you see sort of play out even with, um, you know, the, the, the fallout of the 9-11 um, invasion of Iraq is that the way that popular culture tells the story of the collapse of the Soviet Union has very little to do with the internal dynamics of the Soviet Union. You know, it has a lot more to do with the perceived kind of militarism and posturing of Reagan is basically like, even though there was no war, it's American military might that won the Cold War. And that means that addressing any kind of perceived enemy requires a military response. Doing something means using force. Doing nothing means not using military force. So anyway, these, these are all the ways in which there's a kind of, you know, f a fundamentalist version, you could say, of Cold War politics that takes hold. And then essentially what happens over the last 30 years is kind of step by step, that kind of fundamentalist version amounts to a defection from, from the international order. 
that the U.S. essentially is increasingly, you know, uninterested in playing by the rules that it established because, for one reason, there's no other, you know, actor to say, well, the U.S. actually has to abide by these rules. There's no either material or ideological um, force that's constraining the U.S., and so the U.S. increasingly engages in various forms of unilateralism. It participates in the writing of various statutes, um, international treaties and statutes, but then refuses to sign, sign on to them. And <laughs> what we see, especially over the last decade, I think in many ways are the consequences of the steady American defection, which is, you know, all of the things that we described, the, the deregulation, austerity, market fundamentalism comes back to, to, to sort of destroy the domestic economy and nearly collapse the global economic system. The, um, you have foreign wars that, you know, that are wars of choice that are profoundly destructive. And the American constitutional system itself, the way that American politics operates, rather than this ideal, increasingly looks like, you know, this is a profoundly dysfunctional system that nobody would actually want to import into their own domestic politics if we just think about what American politics looks like. And so all of right. that- and So China becomes an authoritarian capitalist model as opposed to a liberal democratic capitalist model for the, you know- If you're looking as between the two, which seems to, to be more stable and have a better co- potential to providing economic growth and development, the kind of managed authoritarianism of China, which, you know, I'm not at all defending, which is- uh, no, of course not. Yeah. Profoundly um, problematic seems more successful for <laughs> to say the you least. know a small country in the in the global south than the American model. And so by the time we get to 2016, I think it's important to see Trump in the context of Bernie, not just Trump, as highlighting how on the left and the right you have the reemergence of the versions of American politics that had been dominant, frankly, before the Cold War and certainly up through the 30s and early 1940s. Now. In a way, one of the things that I think the Trump years did is the Trump years, because of um, how, you know, xenophobic and distasteful um, and, you know, corrupt, name your adjective, the Trump administration was, as well as like this sort of emergent and extreme right that is explicitly, you know, opposed to democracy, that's embracing white nationalism in the context of the pandemic, that, you know, seems to be a return to the kind of the kind of virulent white nationalism that was also like anti-science that we saw in the 20s. I think one of the things that it did is it it kind of buttressed Cold War liberalism, like the center-right and the center and the center-left. Now the center-right within the Republican Party is pretty moribund. But the center-left continues to have institutional control over the Democratic Party, and it's probably still the largest plurality of, like, voters in this country. Folks that— Because we have an old country. I think that's a real—like, we literally have an old country, and so we have people voting on things that— on perspectives that were solidified literally decades ago. It's a real, it's a real problem that I don't see any easy solution to. And there's also, I think, an understandable nostalgia for normalcy, for a world that, you know, so the, like, let's say the world of Obama, let alone, you know, the world of um, Bill Clinton or the, the, the high tide of the, the Cold War in the 40s and 50s, you know, is a world in which there was a sense of certainty 
in terms of American power overseas. There was an idea of like there's a kind of settlement about what political positions are acceptable and unacceptable, what's on the table, what's off the table, how we how, you know, elites as well as folks in the middle class speak and interact with each other. And it's not surprising that people would want a kind of return to that. And, you know, I think that's a lot of what what Biden represents. I mean, I think it's nonetheless interesting to see that that Biden and the Democratic Party is significantly the Democratic Party leadership, I do think, is significantly to the left, for example, of where Obama was in 2009, despite, you know, the fact that the Obama administration had far greater opportunities for fairly transformative domestic economic changes. But I think the period between 08, 09 and now highlights a kind of recognition about how the, the country has changed. But at the same time, you know, I think the Biden phenomenon highlights the desire essentially for a little bit of that old time religion. Now, my own right. view is that, you know, this is sort of what I said in the piece is that, you know, my guess was at the time that a center left candidate was going to probably win the presidency in 2020. And, you know, the issue, though, is that that perspective and that approach is not up, in my view, to the challenges of our time, the intensity of the institutional dysfunctions, the extremism of, of the, the pandemic's global effects, as well as ecological disaster, the, the extremism of inequality and uh, economic inequality, racial subordination, the problems embedded essentially in both capitalism and American empire. And so hoping, basically, that Biden's victory means that we've kind of turned the page on the set of dynamics that led to the ideological breakdown of that old kind of Cold War consensus, you know, I think is pretty much like wish fulfillment and that the only genuine path out of this is through something like a a transformative left break. That's of course- But we might not get that. I mean- this yeah. is this is I mean yeah that is the struggle but I think it's important to highlight like that there's nothing necessary to that left break happening uh, I think what is Marx's famous quote either we'll basically we'll have socialism and communism or we'll have the ruin of the contending classes something along those lines and I'm worried that we're we're moving towards well, the we, ruin we have I mean the you know you talk about the center left you know still being the driving force in the Democratic Party the center right is is disappearing but it's being absorbed basically yeah. I mean you know we, the these if you define center right at this point as being the 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 Republican the, that segment of the Republican Party that didn't go along with Trumpism they're being brought in basically to the uh, the center left I mean we just read that very illuminating David Brooks column in the New York <laughs> Times where he talks about defending you know he defends the 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 empire on the basis of progressive ideals we have to spread LGBT rights and yeah. women's rights all over the world and it's you know so indicative of where these people are now and the uh, the shift in the audience that they're speaking to and, and you know they they sort of recognize that they've been brought into this kind of leviathan establishment thing that that now exists well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's been most interesting when it comes to the Republican Party, you know, since 2015, 2016, is the growing recognition, essentially, among a certain kind of libertarian, big business, you know, Reagan Republican, that those are folks without a country. You know, there's just, there's no actual yeah. mass base for that position. That's right. That's the thing that I think is really significant. So you still have these figures and they certainly have a kind of cachet 
especially in sort of like center left circles. But they're not figures that have a significant cons- constituency that kind of undergirds the, their own views. And that, you know, uh, right now we're basically in a context in which there is a plurality of perspectives, I think, that actually enjoy significant mass support. And one of those perspectives is a, is a you know, social democratic, democratic socialist left um, and that's a, that's a kind of remarkable thing if we just thought, you know, 30 years ago, would, um, you know, would like a Jack Kemp Republican have a base or would Bernie Sanders have a base? I mean, that's a, right. a transformation yeah. in American politics. So we should probably wrap up, but I just have one very short final question. Do you think that the institutions of the liberal establishment, I'm thinking because Derek just mentioned Brooks, places like the New York Times where they have much more David Brookses than they do have you know, people who support Bernie Sanders, are, are they even up to the transformation or is it going to be what you're seeing with like CNN and MSNBC and like think like all that viewership is kind of down. People aren't paying attention to it anymore. It seems like there's actually an opportunity to begin transforming how people think. I, I want to leave maybe on a little bit of a high note. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I think that, so since we started talking about foreign policy, you know, uh, one of the things that I think has been, again, most interesting about the, this last year is that, you know, for a long time, as we discussed, like foreign policy is supposed to be something that's for elites, um, by elites, and that it's, you know, there's expertise and it's issue specific. It's not at all tied to domestic affairs. But if, again, we look at, you know, what happened in the conversation around Israel-Palestine in May and June, that was something that was very much driven by mass politics and by movement politics. And it clearly had an impact on these sort of sites of, um, for the, you know, sites for the reproduction of like establishment politics from the Times to MSNBC. Like, you know, when I see the Times putting on its front page, like the pictures of Palestinian children that were killed, what's remarkable to me about that is that strikes me as a product of the movement for black lives, which is, in other words, that, you know, movement for black lives, very consciously activists linked racial justice demands at home to racial justice demands abroad, to conceiving of domestic problems in terms of a history of colonialism, and then to telling a story about Palestinian oppression in in those terms. And the fact that you have the images of, of children in the times highlights the way in which that's being tr- translated. Because, you know, one of the things I think is really significant is that, you know, the Times would not do something similar, frankly, about, quote-unquote, collateral damage in the context of the war on terror. And that's largely, for example, how Israeli violence toward Palestinians had been read, been read in terms of, like, these geostrategic conflicts, not in terms of a politics of something like, you know, say their name, where this is an issue of essentially police violence, and state impunity. Um, And so the fact that you have movement activists with a significant social base that are participating in linking sort of the domestic and the foreign 
is then influence. I mean, it's having through these like refracted means influence on like the general conversation. It, it affects what's covered and how it's covered. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and MSNBC, MSNBC, 2003, essentially like fires Phil Donahue because he has the Tiberians. That's right. Yeah. Maybe yes. like this Iraq war thing is a bad idea. I mean, like Phil Donahue, you know, hardly uh, revolutionary, radical, God, yeah, right. the most radical of Marxists, <laughs> you know, Jay Donahue. 2021, you're having a much more open conversation about some elements of American power. So I, I do think this. Uh, so I don't think that these establishment venues are going to be leading, um, you know, uh, leading the cause. But they are a kind of bellwether for developments that are taking place on the ground where we're seeing more of a link than we have previously between what you can think of as like a, a foreign policy expertise and, a, you know, framework that that might be in think tanks or in the academy and a movement politics that have been traditionally pretty much like cleaved apart. And that strikes me as as a significant development. Of course, you know, the the problem that the left has now is the same problem that it's had since you know, since, frankly, the beginning of the Cold War, which is the the left broadly has been largely excised from institutional power within the Democratic Party, right. within foreign policy, you know, um, circles. And so, you know, how is it that you translate mass support into genuine institutional power? Even, for example, the conversation that we're having, like, Daniel, both of us are academics. Like, we do work on foreign affairs. But if we were to think about like, well, who are the people that do work in on like foreign affairs that have like genuinely left positions, like very few or none of them. Very few. Would yeah. be yeah. people that are in, you know, sort of traditional institutional sites that are tied to policy. Almost all would be either activists that are explicitly outside of institutional settings or academics who have essentially been rooted into an academic career precisely because of the ways in which it's disconnected from from politics. Well, they may have the Defense Department, but we have the podcasts. And on that note, <laughs> uh, Aziz, I just want to thank you so much uh, for taking uh, the time to speak with us today. And uh, everyone, thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate it. And if you could subscribe to the podcast on Patreon, just look up American Prestige. Derek and I would, would really appreciate it because we'd love to continue doing this uh, from now until forever. Uh, and until then, we'll see you all next week. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me on.